The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, adult themes, horrible memories, and four special guests, and just like 2020, it feels like it goes for about 100 years. Tuesday, the 29th of December, 2020. In this episode, we look back at the horrible, horrible year that was 2020. And I've got four very special guests to do that with. Mark Humphreys. I'm convinced he'll be Prime Minister for a decade. I think he's really worked out how to just be really ordinary in a really effective way. Okay, it gets a a lot funnier than that. Uh, Yun Leung leads us through the dramas of Australia's relationship with China, and uh, she tells us how knowing the history of Chinese people in Australia is kind of important. Now that I know a little bit more, I realise that it is quite difficult for us to really get a full picture of what's happening without knowing the history of Australia. Journalist Osman Faruqi talks about the politics of policing. But in Australia, what we saw was the greatest amount of power handed to police with the least amount of transparency and scrutiny. And we ponder the year of COVID-19 with Coronacast's Tegan Taylor. I sometimes wonder whether we lose sight of just the hugely destructive scale of the virus um, globally because we've been so protected from it here. Uh, Look, there are some positive things as well. We'll get to them. There's not many, but there are some. This is the 9pm year of brainworms, drama and despair. What a fucker of a year, eh? The whole year was shaped by a global pandemic, COVID-19, of course, and its politics. And there's going to be a whole segment about that coming up not too far in the future. And, and, And the COVID's overflow into all the rest of the segments as well. But do you remember what else happened this year? I mean, in the before times, here's how it started. The largest fire front in the country's history. We're going to get stuck here. Roaring back to life. We need to get out of here. In Nowra, the fire jumped the Shoalhaven River. I'm scared witless. Either side of the Prince's Highway, the main escape route was a bonfire. The might of defence outmuscled in the face of this latest threat. No need for me to list all the fallout from the bushfires, of course. I have linked to the Wikipedia article if you want to refresh your memory. It's quite good. As always, I keep telling you this, I have linked to lots of things. Maybe not all of them this time because uh, it's a long episode and we do go through quite a few things. One thing I I will say about uh, the bushfires, though, of course, is that Prime Minister Scott Morrison talked big but accomplished little announced lots of relief funding, but people didn't get it. At least not the people who needed it. That uh, Scott Morrison problem is a a whole theme this year too, which I won't explore much. I suspect you're sick of it. Anyway, these things 
also happened in 2020. We're going to begin at the White House, where President Trump spoke out for the first time from the Rose Garden, vowing to send U.S. troops into the streets of American cities if local authorities don't control the protests. Those remarks came just moments after the administration asked police to clear peaceful protesters from the park across the White House so the president could stage a photo op. Much of Beirut is shattered this morning by one of the most powerful peacetime explosions ever. But the will to live remains strong even after this. A survivor this morning found under the rubble, for some, a miracle. Well, uh, it's a candle. Yeah. And um, so it's called, This Smells Like My Vagina. (laughs) (laughs) Putting aside the smell of Gwyneth Paltrow's vagina, uh, which has to be one of the best but also most alarming phrases of 2020, Black Lives Matter, you heard there. I I won't talk about that much myself, not because it's not important. Uh, It is kind of important when the United States starts sending federal troops against unarmed protesters and peaceful protesters. But I don't have anything to add, although Osman Faruqi does, and you'll hear from him in a little while. Yeah, then on uh, 4th of August... A large amount of ammonium nitrate blows up in the port of the city of Beirut in Lebanon. 204 deaths, 6,500 injuries, $15 billion US in property damage, and about 300,000 people homeless. That explosion, 2,750 tonnes of ammonium nitrate, that's around 1.1 kilotons. It's the size of a, you know, a little tactical nuke. And yet after the first few days, we heard nothing more about it. I have no idea how that turned out. And that's despite Australia having a significant um, population of people uh, from Lebanon and still lots of connections there. And yet our <laughs> overly white media um, in Australia just lost interest. And that's, you know, remarkable given how many Lebanese Australians present the news in Australia. While we're speaking of Australia, uh, the economy, pretty fucked, obviously, uh, due to the COVID. See, it creeps in everywhere, doesn't it? Uh, we suddenly had these catchly named programs, Job Keeper and Job Seeker and Job Fister and Job Nostril and Job Cunt. We learned during the year that it's actually possible to give everyone enough money to live on. And if you give them enough money to live on, they spend it on things to live on. But, of course, uh, on the 1st of January, just a couple of days away, that's all going to be cut by $50 a week. So happy New Year to anyone really struggling. You're going to struggle a bit more. During the year, uh, we were reminded uh, that in the United States, at least, and I suspect it's similar here, the gap between the wealthiest people and the not wealthiest people is wider than it's been in a very long time. Uh, In fact, uh, Credit Suisse Global's Wealth Report a couple of years ago said that in the US, 
it was worse than the 1929 stock market crash now. Uh, in fact, it's worse than France in the 1790s uh, when this kind of equality triggered, well, a little thing called the French Revolution and uh, of those rich people uh, lavishly spending money, well, 17,000 of them went to Madame Guillotine. Of course, that's not relevant now, is it? Or is it? In the brave new world of 2020, uh, did any of that matter? And I, look, possibly it does, because in the United States, uh, they're, they're all going to get uh, $600 stimulus checks. Wow. Although, as someone noted uh, the other day, you can get a guillotine uh, for under 500 bucks, Americans. So, and they're not too hard to build yourself, I imagine. Some American friends uh, lately have had numbers in their tweets. I was wondering, what's that about? And I realised it's a countdown. It's the number of days left until Donald Trump is gone out of the White House. Less than a month now. I was wrong about Trump, 2020, of course. Four more years, I'd been saying. But America did swing against him. The Black Lives Matter protest obviously were important. The 300,000 deaths from COVID-19, obviously important. So, yeah, I, I admit, okay, I was wrong. I'm glad I was wrong. I'm upset that I was wrong for the reasons just mentioned. Maybe I was just wrong about which four more years. That's something to look forward to, isn't it? What else happened this year? Oh, New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian. Uh, it was revealed that she'd done a deal uh, that meant her boyfriend, her secret boyfriend, who was also a member of Parliament, got $5 million to spend on some project or whatever. And she thinks that's all OK. Uh, Australia's war crimes were exposed. We still haven't seen what's going to happen about that. Hard to be proud of Australia when that sort of thing happens. Uh, the head of Australia Post happened to buy some expensive watches as bonuses for her executives. Not a huge amount of money in terms of executive bonuses, but of course they were luxury watches, so suddenly it's bad. She gets crucified for it. Uh, all of the dollars for mates that Prime Minister Scott Morrison has arranged kind of get forgotten. Uh, university, res university research funds cut. Uh, bushfire recovery, uh, recovery, I've mentioned about the lack of resources. But yeah, what about rebuilding the economy? Scott Morrison phones some mate in the gas industry. Uh, a panel of people has put together uh, without any real documentation of how this is happening. And good heavens, people in the gas industry suddenly recommend that the economic recovery is going to be all about supporting the gas industry. Who fucking knew? even though gas is one of the industries with the least employees of all. Uh, the robo-debt thing, the malicious, uh, uh, appallingly inhuman method for extracting money from the poorest people in the country, uh, we found out, yeah, that's illegal. No one seems to particularly care about that except the people affected. And all the while, we, we kept a couple of kids in prison because their parents had the temerity to be refugees. Australia really is run by and enabled by a pack of cunts, 
and it became obvious this year. Journalism didn't help us in this, and I'll come back to that shortly. Last episode, I, I did play a clip uh, by Jonathan Pye from 2017, and there was, there was some objections to his characterization of Guardian readers as big C cunts. So let's roll back a bit further to consider uh, this sort of um, journalism stuff. Here's Mitchell and Webb uh, with some thoughts from 2019. So we need a new heartwarming column for the weekend supplement now that me and my illness has had to be spiked. Oh, what a shame. Why? Work it out. (laughs) So what I was thinking was that we might have something a little more upbeat to replace it. Any thoughts? Well, I think I might have, actually. You see, one of our columnists has just had a baby. Maybe we could get her to write about that. Mm, Don't quite a lot of people have babies? Well, yes, they do. But this particular journalist seems to be under the impression that she's the only person ever to have done it. (laughs) Interesting. Plus, I suppose there's a fact that something that millions of women do every day is always going to be intrinsically more interesting and unique if a journalist does it. Yes, you've convinced me. Let's run it every week for five years. Then we could perhaps replace it with a My Child is Going to School Now series. Oh, I think we'd have to be a bit careful about that. We don't want any crossover with the Family Dad column. Oh, I I love Family Dad. It's so funny how he's basically a good father but sometimes gets things slightly wrong. (laughs) What's he doing this week? Oh, it's brilliant. He and his family go to get some furniture from a superstore, which is obviously Ikea, but he very cleverly doesn't tell us that it is, even though he's made it really clear. And they buy some self-assembly furniture, which he insists on making without reading the instructions, because they're just pictures. And then it all falls apart, and his wife has to fix it, and his son calls him a lesbian. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) Isn't it? Oh! Uh. That is brilliant. He should have followed the instructions. (laughs) Yes! And his son called him a lesbian, which is inappropriate. Yes, brilliant. Well, it sounds like a heck of an issue. What else have we got for this week? For the cookery section, we've got a journalist who can't cook, who was sending on a cookery course. To become better at cooking. Yes, exactly. Good, I like that. That's very strong. Hopefully he'll become a bit better at cooking and something funny will happen. Fashion? Well, our fashion editor has just been sent a lovely coat which cost £2,000. So she thought we could do a feature about the nicest coats you can get for £2,000. That sounds a bit excluding. Perhaps you could arbitrarily include one 20 quid coat from Primark, which doesn't really look like the others, but is the same colour. Brilliant idea. I don't see how anyone could object to that. By the way, I can't help noticing that I've been getting a lot of articles about gardening recently. I wondered when you'd notice. I've had rather an exciting idea. I thought it might be rather exciting if we did a weekend special about only one thing instead of about lots of things. So one week we could have every article being about gardening, or another week every article could be about cars. You know, subjects that fascinate literally everyone. I like that. I can't see any possible downside in a whole magazine sticking relentlessly to one topic. Brilliant. I'll go and tell all the journalists to get cracking. Oh, before you go, we've forgotten the women's section again. Oh, for goodness sake. It's so annoying the way we forget the women's section every week and end up having to fill it with articles about men and shoes. (laughs) That's uh, from the Mitchell and Webb Sound, the radio series, series four, episode six. That's all on Audible these days. Maybe I should have a a regular column about men and shoes. 
or about not being able to cook or all about, no, not about having a child. I'll be a terrible parent. I don't have the patience for it. Look, maybe I should have a regular column of some sort. Maybe in 2021, I'll start writing it or videoing it. (laughs) I'll tell you about my plans a little later. (laughs) Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. This coronavirus outbreak started as a few cases of pneumonia in workers at a fish market in central China. It then quickly spread elsewhere in Asia, the US and possibly here in Australia. A travel ban will be placed on all non-residents, non-Australian citizens coming to Australia and that will be in place from 9pm tomorrow evening. A growing list of Sydney restaurants and cafes are closed for cleaning after contact with people who have tested positive to COVID-19. New South Wales recorded 21 new cases overnight. I'm uh, saddened to have to report that the uh, total number of people who have died because of this global pandemic in Victoria is now 105. That is 13 additional fatalities. This virus at its level right now is and will overwhelm each and every one of our schools if we do not take action. This as the U.S. hits a grim milestone, more than 250,000 coronavirus-related deaths. That chilling number expected to climb as hospitalizations reach an all-time high. It's a remarkable moment, months in the making. A New York ICU nurse. I feel great. And doctor. Ready? Yes. Okay. Let's do this. Among the first to receive the first U.S. COVID vaccine today at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. Hey, you know what this segment's going to be about, don't you? This once-in-a-century pandemic that's changed so much about everything, hasn't it? Look, one of my guiding lights through all of this was the ABC's, and still is, the ABC's daily coronacast. And I wanted, therefore, to talk to one of the presenters, but not Dr. Norman Swan, because he has totally unacceptable views about quokkas, as you know, they're rubbish animals. They're just rubbish animals. Uh, But health and science reporter Tegan Taylor has taken time to talk to me. Tegan, welcome. Is this the wrong time for me to out myself as a quokka lover as well? Oh! (laughs) Uh, Look, it's a holiday thing. Uh, uh, I don't know. Quolls, Tegan. Quolls are the way to go. Uh, I've yet to meet a marsupial that I don't like, so uh, quolls, quokkas, I love them all. Okay. Well, putting putting that aside, I don't need to ask, like, what's your year been like? You must be exhausted after talking about the Rona every day. I mean, I thought I was a nerd who really liked science and viruses and stuff like that, but this has tested my limits, I'll tell you that. No, it has been a bonkers year for me personally, but I mean, nothing compared to what people who are actually living uh, living through really oh, epic yeah. lockdowns and infected by it and stuff are, so really cannot complain. But yes, it's been a busy year professionally. Now, I will say we're recording this a few days before Christmas. So right now we don't know whether the whole Sydney Northern Beaches thing uh, will increase or decrease or what restrictions you, dear listener, had to put up with over Christmas or not. I'll update that a bit later in the pod. Uh, so, Tegan, let's zoom like way up, really wide 
view, how would you summarize what someone on a reality TV show would call your or our journey through the COVID times? Australia's journey. Australia's oh, well, journey. Yeah, I think. Um, a Rona ride. How's that? <laughs> I love it. Uh, that's what the movie will be called. Um, I think that Australians from the very beginning have been really eager to band together and sort of work together to do the right thing. But I think the reality of what that actually meant, none of us really understood at the beginning. So I, I kind of I think back to March, April, and it was all like, yeah, stop the spread and stay home and save lives. And we were all kind of energised to stay at home. And then as the years went on, the reality of what it really takes to outwit a virus which has had millions of years of evolution to um, to survive in this very sort of situation has really started to come home and the other thing that I that I have to say about the Australian journey is that we've had it so good because we were so tough on it from the very beginning but I sometimes wonder whether we lose sight of just the hugely destructive scale of the virus um, globally because we've been so protected from it here. I mean, I've mentioned on the pod before, uh, a very good mate of mine uh, now works in Washington, D.C. His landlady is a black woman of a certain age and a a former midwife. So she's, she's seen a lot in her life, obviously. She has lost three relatives in her extended family and had to fight to get one of them recorded as the Rona. They were just going to put it down as respiratory failure. Um, And, like, the numbers, I I, I mean, it's hard to be – I mean, it's hard to get your head around, right? And I'm just sort of riffing here. Australians tend to forget that the rest of the world has a much harder time with with almost anything than we do. Yeah, I think think one of the things that's really baked into Australian culture, and I'll go so far as to say I think New Zealand as well, is – quarantine and border security from a a biological point of view where it's very much something that we're used to is that we don't bring in plants and animals from uh, that aren't native to here because we know what kind of ecological destruction that they can have and I think that it's been a relatively easy jump for us to go from that kind of border quarantine around um, things that aren't human to to a human disease like coronavirus, whereas perhaps overseas it was a harder sell uh, politically and also just a harder job. Like when you're girt by sea, it's relatively easy to keep um, viruses out because you've got a border no matter which way you try to come into the country, whereas it's almost impossible for a European country to have a similar kind of level of border security. You mentioned politics there. I mean, I've been frustrated by... The health response by the the science getting politicised uh, without naming names that we have named on this podcast before because I'll protect you from this, Tegan, because you work <laughs> for the ABC. Uh, we've had economists and journalists at some other outlets uh, essentially saying, let's have a few people die for the economy. We've had lots of name-calling between, you know, Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland a bit and and of course it becoming party politicized has I'm guessing that's frustrated you as much as it's frustrated me which is a lot I think there's always going to be ideological divides around how much of a public health response or any kind of response is 
proportionate to the other costs that you incur. And mm. there's no doubt that putting a country into lockdown or the really tough lockdowns that we've seen in parts of Australia have had a cost. And someone has to make a decision that that cost is worth it because of the payoff that you have, which is sort of protecting people and all that sort of thing. But early on, I mean, I don't envy anyone those decisions. And I totally think that decisions should be completely based in science and that politics shouldn't come into scientific decision making. But I think that even, even if you have all of the evidence in front of you, it's a tough choice to make to put, uh, you know, mental health is always going to suffer when people are isolated from each other. Mm-hmm. There's economic costs, which we didn't know at the time we're going to have a payoff in terms of being able to reopen again. And so we, everyone went into 2020 not knowing everything that we needed to know about this this new virus that, I mean, I think the WHO was notified um, on the 31st of December last year. So this really has been like a, a 2020 moment, right? No, no one knew who this enemy was or what it did or didn't need to be uh, fought. And so you never really be, you're never really able to make those decisions with a completely full set of information in front of you. And so then you have to, you have to basically make a decision and, and back yourself on it. And to Australia's credit, I think for all of the, you know, state border sniping and different bits and pieces that have happened here, on the whole, I think we've had a, a relatively united idea of what we're prepared to do to stop the spread of the virus, whereas I see overseas those divides are much bigger. And still happening, of course. Now, mm. we, I think, did what many people did, and and you did this too with the coronacast. You're going in every day. We were looking at numbers every day. It felt like something that was an acute problem, to use like a medical term for it. Yeah. And it, it seemed to take us a while to go, wait, wait, no, this is a long haul um, and we're just going to have to adjust and um, now we're here effectively a year later and we're going to enter a new year still not knowing quite what we're doing. Maybe the, vo- the vaccines won't even work. There's a happy thought. <laughs> certainly they're not going to be evenly distributed around the world because that's just how our world is, unfortunately. How did that shape for you? Because I know you talked about it in episode 200 of Coronacast that, again, as I just said, you thought, yeah, this will all be, this, you know, will this podcast be done in a few weeks? Yeah, I mean, people sort of like to say to each other, it's a marathon, not a sprint, but no one actually knows how long the marathon is. You know, like how long is this particular marathon that we're running? Is it a six-month marathon? Is it a 12-month marathon? Is it a five-year marathon? Please, God, no. Um, And so, yeah, when this first started and um, I was – I'm a health reporter, I'm a massive geek, and I was reading in January about this mysterious pneumonia in China, kind of going, oh, this could be the next global pandemic, but not really thinking it would be. Mm. And when it was all really kicking off and and that sort of thing, the the points of reference that we had from recent times were, well, the main one was SARS. And so SARS was a massive deal and it was really, really scary and we – you know, the the globe really kind of rallied together to eradicate it. And we eradicated it in like two years. And it was it, it took a toll, but its, it's toll was minuscule in comparison to what uh, the coronavirus has, managed, has ended up being, the novel coronavirus. And, and before that, the sorts of pandemics that we're looking back to are 
1918 flu pandemic when we didn't really know that viruses were even a thing. And so there was no really good analogue for what we were going into. And so truly, I did think it was going to be a bit of a fizzer. And I'm pretty bummed that it wasn't, to be honest. Like, it's been a... There's only so much the geek effect can go, hey, this is really interesting. Let's see how we can cope with a pandemic. Yeah, when you've got got this number of people dying and the the global toll that we're seeing, it's horrible. And, and yeah, I don't think any of us truly... Well, maybe we hoped that it would be a short-term thing. And in retrospect, hopefully, we'll look back and realise that it was. But, yeah, like I say, no one knew... Well, maybe, maybe some of the really smart epidemiologists did and they just weren't um, mean enough to say it at the time. But, yeah, no no one really knew what we were going into at the beginning of this year. And now that we're nearly at the end of 2020, how do you feel about going into 2021? Uh, look, I'm an eternal optimist. So I, I, I am so, so inspired by the pace of science this year when it's come to understanding this virus, for starters, and then developing tools to fight it. And I don't just mean vaccines, but vaccines are the big one, right? And the fact that we're coming out of this year with several really strong vaccine candidates that are using technologies that haven't been used before, and then some of them are using old technologies as well that are tried and true. And for all of the international hoo-ha, there's been a lot of collaboration and a lot of negotiation and planning put in place and all the logistics that need to be there to to vaccinate people at the scale that we want to do it and and all of the other treatments that have been investigated and some of them have proved effective and some of them haven't through, throughout this year, at least in terms of SARS-CoV-2, we're going into 2021 so much better equipped than we went into 2020, bless past us, they didn't know what they were getting in for. Uh, I think some of our biggest challenges next year are going to be logistical and uh, human-based rather than uh, biological. Well, I think that's about as optimistic as we can possibly get, given the topic. Uh, <laughs> Tegan Taylor, thank you so much. Happy New Year. Best to you and yours. Thank you so much, and thank you to all your listeners. Tegan is such an optimist, isn't she? I'm less of an optimist, uh, obviously, as you all probably know by now. Anyway, I did promise an update. So as I record this on the 29th of December, the situation in New South Wales is that, yeah, there's still more locally acquired cases linked back to the Avalon cluster. There's been more people testing positive. I saw in places like Wollongong, uh, we don't know how they connect yet at the time of recording. Um, and the numbers are going up. Uh, so the figures overall for New South Wales at the moment uh, is since January 25th, there's been 4,692 cases, plus a few more this afternoon. Uh, 56 deaths, which, I mean, is remarkable when you look at the the stats more widely and you can get these stats the current stats just google COVID-19 stats and they'll they'll come up uh Victoria 820 deaths uh eventually which is frightening I won't go through the other states but lower numbers all equally tragic of course the United States 335,000 
dead. I can't comprehend that. That's a hundred times more than a hundred times as many people were killed in the 9-11 attacks in 2001. That caused a total transformation of airline security and security generally in the United States and indeed around the world. And yet this is just happening and it's more than 100 times worse, far more than 100 times worse. And it's not going to get better anytime soon. Worldwide, 1.77 million deaths. So I think, wasn't it Stalin said, you know, one death is a tragedy, a thousand deaths is a statistic or whatever. Look it up for yourself. America still doesn't get it. I don't think Australians get it in a way. Because we've seen people just doing the yeah, it's all over thing for Christmas Day. Uh, we saw a wedding go ahead uh, up on the northern beaches of, of Sydney in violation of the, the rules. We've got New Year's Eve coming up. It's going to be terrible. Not as terrible as the United States. Uh, and as Tegan just said, we... We sometimes forget how lucky we are. One of the things that's come up for me during during these quarantines is its effect on journalists and on journalism. It's it's really highlighted some of the weaknesses in the way journalism is done. Uh, one of those is that, of course, we have political journalists reporting on a pandemic because. We're seeing state premiers and the prime minister and their advisors doing press conferences. And the assumption is that when it's a senior politician, it's the political journalists who go to the press conference because they have the access. And as I've said in the past, within newsrooms, the political journalists are seen as the ones uh, with status with uh, with seniority because they're the ones interviewing the people with status. And because political journalism has constantly got an element of what are you hiding, what you know who's winning the horse racing of journalism, who won today's question time and all that, political journalists are constantly looking for the lie. Now that's fair enough. But a science or health journalist approaches these things in a different kind of way. Their kind of journalism is about how can we help people understand what's going on? How can we answer the audience's questions about how this affects them? So they're not looking for gotchas. And and during the, the corona time, sure, there are things that went wrong and will continue to go wrong. But right now, day to day, what people need to know is what affects them. Things about funding for aged care or processes to do with establishing a contact tracing regime, that should be happening to a much slower news cycle, not dumbass questions 
uh, like on a daily basis. So what do these three new cases tell us about the effectiveness of contact tracing? Well, the answer is nothing because it's just one data point. Like, it's a stupid question. Come back with some statistics and facts later. Sure. And and the other thing we're seeing, and another thing we're seeing, because I've got some more to get to, is this who can we blame? We want a simple narrative. There's someone whose fault this is. Can we find out their name? Can we show their face? And now we know who the bad person is. Now we know... It's the goodies versus baddies. It's the brave nurses versus the evil people who broke quarantine, the foreigners who brought the disease in. Uh, what else have we got? The morality play of bad people on the beach enjoying themselves. How dare they enjoy themselves in, in a time of crisis, even though on the beach and spaced a few metres apart is probably one of the safest places you can be. Got into a thing the other day on Twitter about that. Because, again, someone had posted the telephoto shot of people on the beach and how dare they? And I went, well, no, they're, they're fine. Why are you Why are you continuing this? And, and uh, wait, you're at the beach too. It's not that the beach is packed. You're part of the pack. I won't identify the person who... I got into a bit of a spat with because, I mean, who it is is not important. And, you know, no one needs to harass them. But they ended their little thing was, I, I'm going to the beach because I always enjoy the beach when it isn't crowded. And I thought, what? But you're the crowd. You are the crowd. The other thing I want to mention about it is that we've been seeing daily press conferences, certainly from Dan Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, and daily or near daily ones from New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian, uh, and, and you know, when it's been relevant in the other states as well, really quite frequently. And they're all being broadcast live, which means worried people are watching them, which means worried people are... Uh, are kind of watching the sausage of journalism being made. You really don't want to look at this because journalism isn't really about finding the truth except in very, very specific kinds of journalism. It's mostly about putting together an entertaining and engaging narrative in a little story, uh, either in words or in pictures uh, or in sounds uh, that's part of a thing that is packaged up by a news factory and delivered in a chunk. A newspaper, a 30-minute television bulletin, a five-minute radio news bulletin, a 30-minute current affairs program, whatever it is. So the narrative has to fit within that. And like any good story, a narrative needs characters. It needs goodies. It needs baddies. And that's the frustrating part, because if you watch a press conference in its bloody raw state, you see the journalists trying to manufacture the individual components of that narrative. 
So when they say, again, what does this tell us about the contact tracing, they're looking to see whether that will deliver a new answer or maybe the answer they have before. But either way, they want a quote. They want the, the picture of the Premier looking frustrated. They want the scientists saying there's been a miracle breakthrough. Uh, they want to identify who the bad person was to create that narrative, which is why the journalists are all competing, often getting quite worked up, to to get that thing. And why they're often going, the, how can you be sure that this is correct? Well, and then they get the answer they want. We know, you know, we know this person is the initial patient because we've done testing and it turns out they went to the same bar or whatever. The thing is, though, the news factories haven't really adapted uh, to all of this being available. They haven't adapted to the entire audience being able to watch it live you know, watching the sausage machine mince through the words. I'm confusing metaphors here. And so people are getting fragments of it. They're seeing, you know, health people saying constantly they don't know. Politicians lie. I, I don't know. It's all very, very disappointing. But my own thoughts on on the COVID finally, yeah, this is this is going to get worse, a lot worse before it gets better. I don't think Australia has really seen the last of it. In 1918, we thought we'd, we'd done it, yes. And then in 1919, it came back worse. And I think the comparison from 2020 into 2021 is going to be the same. Aren't I a happy little possum? Locked inside with zero notice. One of the 3,000 who woke this morning to find their public housing buildings surrounded by police. They're testing us. They lock us in. 24 hours after being told no one could leave and no one can enter, some we spoke to still hadn't heard from the health department or received food. 3,000 residents across Melbourne's public housing blocks will have their rent suspended for two weeks as they are forced into an extreme lockdown. Many of the residents say they were blindsided by the move, leaving them with little or no time to repair and social services were left scrambling. If you live within what I'm living currently, you would feel you're in a uh, prison. I do believe that this planning of this was horribly done. We, are, we were ambushed, to be honest. Those grabs are from July, five months ago now, or as we used to feel at uh, five years. Melbourne was hit hard by COVID-19, as we know, and it therefore locked down harder than anyone else. And for Victoria, at least, it was the political story of the year. It is still being understood Uh in terms of, yeah, Dan Andrews as Premier did so well because he locked down and he he squashed it, or Dan Andrews is an evil dictator and Melbourne is suffering for it. And those battles are still going on 
And yeah, they're going to go on well into 2021. Anyway, I think this story is worth looking at. So I've grabbed Osman Faruqi. He's the editor of the 7 a.m. Uh, the 7 a.m. podcast, which you really should listen to. A writer for the Saturday paper, which you really should read. He's a columnist for NME, which I didn't realise was still a thing. Uh, he's co-host of Read the Room on 3 FM in Melbourne. And he's here, Osman Faruqi. Welcome to the end of a year. Thank you. It has certainly been a year. I'm very <laughs> excited to be welcoming the end of it uh, with you. Uh, aren't we all? Uh, particularly, uh, as I will say, and we're going to have to talk about the COVIDs a bit more because you were covering uh, for the Saturday paper the the weirdness that was Melbourne, you know, some people saying it was really good, some people saying it was really bad, and who who did actually order security guards from God knows where to <laughs> do hotel quarantine? We, we still don't know, do we? And we will never know, probably. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was a very strange time for me personally. I only moved to Melbourne the end of January from Sydney, so it was kind of finding my feet and ended up being – uh, you know, in deep lockdown for most of the year. And, and you know, as a, as a journalist uh, living and working in the city, it was the biggest story of the year was the, uh, the lockdown itself, the way the virus was spreading, the different responses the government had, whether they were good, whether they were bad, which bits were good or bad, um, and found myself kind of thrust into the, to the middle of all that. And, you know, I wonder whether, you know, you, you brought up the, uh, the question of like security guys, what wasn't one that exercised me that much and i've kind of thought back and looked at why some of my reporting touched on ideas that were quite different to what a lot of other victorian state reporters are doing and i wonder whether it was because of the fact that i was kind of new to the city and wasn't trying to like you know find the story that everyone had decided was the story that needed to run in the nightly news i just kind of had the my own areas of interest that i wanted to pursue um and it seemed like people found that kind of useful. So it was an interesting way to spend the year. Well, it it was, and I will say um, the Saturday paper is very good at taking different angles and longer stories simply because it is a, a weekly operation uh, and you have a really cool editor there, can I say. <laughs> oh, no, um, she's great. She's also my housemate, big fan oh, okay. uh, of Madison. Um, uh, and, yeah, like you're right, I think having – uh, having the time and the space and the support of the publication to do deep dives and to not be pressured into, you know, trying to turn something around in a couple of hours really helped us unpack these things. So, I mean, I could talk about my work being great forever, but I'm sure there's more interesting <laughs> things to, to dig into. Well, there are, but one of them does come back. To your work, sorry, mm. but I mean, that, mm. that is kind of why we're talking to you today. Totally. Um, your piece from August, Policing as Part of the National Psyche, in a year where across the US and then around the world, the whole Black Lives Matter mm. protests mm. kicked off, pointing out, obviously, the appalling policing in the United States, the institutional racism, you know, we, we probably don't need to go on about that like what it is, mm. people know what it that's about. And yet in Australia, it was all, that man wasn't wearing a mask, lock him up. <laughs> and as we record this in Sydney just before Christmas, the same thing is happening again. And mm. 
Um, the news out of Sydney, what's today? I better say we're recording this on the 22nd of December uh, at Bondi Junction. Uh, there were queues of people in cars waiting up to six hours to get their COVID-19 tests, so some of them were on their phones. So New South Wales police, may all the gods bless them, they were going around and pinging them for using a phone in their car. Extraordinary story. It's <laughs> read, read the room, guys, you know, like you don't need to hit your quotas at this particular time when the government is trying to encourage testing. <laughs> I will I will say that since that was reported that the commissioner or whoever has gone no 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 that's not going to happen. Mm. But like what mentality is it there in the first place and I guess I mean leading into your story this is part of Australia isn't it call the cops. Yeah it's it's a, I, I'm actually really glad that that you want to talk about this one because it's something that is you know it's something that I've been thinking about so much throughout the year because we've seen this contrast with the Black Lives Matter movement on one hand starting mm. June, July. And, the you know, by no means has it fully fulfilled its mandate to reform the way criminal justice operates. But, you know, in, in so many parts of the world, including in America, Canada, even New Zealand and the UK, there's been some kind of reckoning and, and changes to police powers and conversations about defunding or shifting resources away from police into social services. So that's kind of one end of the policing spectrum. But but in Australia, what we saw was the greatest amount of power handed to police with the least amount of transparency and scrutiny at the same time. And And I think what made me want to think about this was I've done reporting on police and crime before, particularly looking at the ways that uh, certain communities, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, uh, migrant communities, people who live in the poorer parts of, of the country, and particularly in big cities, tend to feel the brunt of policing more than, than other people, right? And then so when mm. COVID hit, seeing how the police force was being used as the primary kind of public health instrument in so many states and territories. And I was, you know, we, at the start of the year, back in sort of March, April, when the world was going through the first lockdown together, it was really interesting because you could see, okay, how are the police in the UK dealing with this? How are police in the US dealing with this? How are police in Canada dealing with this? And I started to uh, crunch some numbers and, and put together a, a spreadsheet looking at what was happening in different jurisdictions and found that in Australia, police were fining people for breaching public health orders on a per capita basis many, many times more than they were in comparable jurisdictions. And in, in other countries, that was leading to a bit of a backlash and, and, a, and a discussion about how, you know, in New York and LA, for example, the, there was a lot of reporting on how overwhelmingly the people who were being fined by police for breaching public health orders were black or migrant or brown people. And in Australia, that conversation was kind of absent. And then Black Lives Matter happens, which you know, sparks this huge conversation around the world about this. And it's like, okay, maybe we'll start to see this play out in the context of COVID in Australia. But then a couple of weeks after that, we saw the Towers lockdown in Melbourne, uh, which, you know, recent government ombudsman report just out a few days ago uh, found that the government breached the human rights of the people living in those towers um, and prioritised what they described, what the report described as a theatre of policing as opposed to something that was actually about improving people's public health, right? So we saw these really fascinating comparisons happen in real time that, that, that saw Australians double down on policing as a response to the pandemic 
even if there wasn't an evidence basis for it, while the rest of the world was sort of shifting away from that model. And it just stuck with me. It sort of encapsulated this idea that, you know, Australians love to see themselves as, as larrikins, as people who distrust authority, when in reality, I think we kind of turn to it amongst the most when you put us in a bucket of comparable countries. Well, I, uh, as you know, report on uh, digital surveillance mm. and, and the mm. kind of online and cyber aspects of uh, policing, and we see a similar sort of thing coming through in the media discussion of what those, what those laws are. So anything that's about digital surveillance is framed absolutely in fighting the terrorists, mm. fighting the pedophiles mm. and the international drug trade, and that's... Like, that's a fine thing to do, right? I think you know, no one's not in favour of that. Yes, yes, totally. But the the more general media, I'm really trying not to say mainstream media because that because <laughs> no, the people who, who use that MSM is, uh, yeah, totally, all right, that's totally. another whole thing. But the, the broad political discussion never digs down into it and discovers, hey, you know this, in theory, could be used for for someone just getting into a brawl at a pub, right? Or you know, um, graffiti in Queensland, graffitiing a public building can have up to a three year jail sentence. So I mean, you're, you're spot on, and and you would know this from the tech side of things, like all of these laws. And you know, when you cast your mind back to September 11, when you know the, the aftermath of that saw these huge increases in in police powers really authorized mm. at state and federal levels, the argument then was, you know, we need to stop terrorism, which no one disagrees with, right? No one is saying, I oppose these laws because I want there to be more terrorism. I want there to be more crime. Uh, in the context of COVID, no one is saying, or certainly I'm not arguing, I haven't been arguing that, I want the virus to spread. It's more that it, laws <laughs> well, always- you, You're not an economist, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Or, or a columnist <laughs> at the Australian, you know, but um, yeah. but but it's not it's it's the it's the the consequences of that, and it's like uh, are the laws introduced under the guise of fighting child porn and terrorism only used in those contexts? Of course not. Of course not. Um, they're used in so many other ways as well, and a lot of troubling troubling ways. And and when it comes to COVID, the thing that made me the most, uh, I guess, interested and 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 keen to highlight this was if the laws introduced, the public health orders introduced, were about stopping the spread of the virus and keeping the community safe. Why was there a hugely disproportionate police impact in the areas that had the least amounts of virus? You know, what we saw in the first wave of the lockdown in New South Wales, one of the stories I wrote at the time was that there were towns that have high Aboriginal populations, towns with 30 to 40 percent Aboriginal populations that had zero COVID cases that had some of the highest per capita fines of public health order breaches. So even though the law had this ostensible purpose, it was being used by police in the same way they use a lot of their powers, which is to target vulnerable communities. And I think, you know, I feel like you make these similar points when it comes to uh, these powers. You know, the AFP legislation that was introduced a few weeks ago, Peter Dutton says it's about stopping, you know, child sex abuse. But the powers aren't about child sex abuse. They're about potentially spying on all kinds of uh, activities that Australians might be up to. Um, Absolutely. And and as I've always said, well, if it's just about those things, write that into the law. Absolutely. You know, right. I totally, mean, totally, why doesn't yeah. it say that? Which leads us to the depressing subject of the Christchurch massacre, hmm. uh, which again is something you've you've written about. And again, it's something that 
Australia as the nation that produced this guy. He's a pretty messed up guy. I have read mm. much of the the New Zealand Royal Commission into this. All of all of what happened to him that made him what he was happened in Australia. Mm. And yet our leaders have been remarkably silent. Yeah, it's something that um, has sort of stuck with me since the attacks happened last year in, in, in March. I remember the Prime Minister Scott Morrison very quickly after the attack said, you know, extremism like this has no nationality. And while that, <laughs> you know, while that might be comforting to say, it's totally false, right? And, mm. you know, there was reporting done at the time, really fantastic reporting, um, particularly by a couple of great investigative journalists at the ABC, uh, Alex Mann and Kevin Ewan, that looked into the online persona of, of the terrorist and the way he was radicalized online, the kind of media he consumed, the, the organizations that were very Australian that he was, he was uh, uh, you know, a part of or supporting. And then the report came out and in quite painstaking detail, uh, provided a map of someone who, yes, was influenced by the internet and influenced by far-right ideology in the US and in Europe, but was also very Australian in terms of uh, the groups that he participated in in Facebook, the media that he consumed. And I just don't think, I think you're spot on. It's not something that our political leaders have wanted to reckon with. And I, I kind of understand why. One, it's just like a big, difficult thing to reckon with. But also, if you run a government where your home affairs minister says it's a mistake to have let in uh, Muslim migrants from Lebanon in the 70s and 80s, how do you how do you draw a line between the kinds of rhetoric that, that your side of politics has embraced and the fact that there are people who agree with similar views, but then take that to a violent end? Like, I think it's it's not it's not something that I think this current government or the conservative side of politics and media more generally can, with a straight face, say they want to combat. You know, and that's a bit of a mm. heavy thought, but I think it is part of the challenge in this. I will I will say to anyone who really wants to get their head around what the challenge is there, the New Zealand Royal Commission report, and as always, there's links in the podcast website. There's seventy seven pages on just this guy and how he got to where he is in in vast detail. It is both fascinating and horrifying. And uh, to perhaps wrap up on that point, what, a, what annoys me is having uh, followed what our security intelligence agencies do for a number of years. Mm. They have been saying for years, the FBI in the US has been saying for years, the the. Uh, agencies in Britain for years that far-right politics, nationalist politics and the potential for terrorism is right up there at the top of the things that they're worried about and yet they're not getting the political directive to do anything about mm. it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ASIO in its threat assessment reports lately has been saying that the Christchurch massacre is not not the peak. It's not the end of far-right extremism. It's likely to inspire more, which which mm. suggests that there needs to be a very serious political conversation about how we combat that. And yeah, like you're totally right. I, I share your sort of dismay that that's not happening in those circles. Uh, this conversation has, of course, been very depressing uh, so far. <laughs> well, he says, I like, was just thinking that. I'm so sorry that. This is, but hey, it's 2020, right? No, like, we can't that, avoid that's 2020. Yeah. That's what it's about. Were there actually any bright spots this year? Look, I, 
I've gone through so many different phases, right? And I'm sure so many people have. And, and some some of the the way that the years played out, being profoundly depressed and like lonely when you're stuck at home, to also mm. realizing that you know actually it's been a great way to connect to people that I otherwise wouldn't have in terms of doing Zoom calls and phone calls and getting to know my neighbors a little bit. Um, I've rediscovered you know some old television and movies and music that I you know that, that I've really been that I've really been enjoying, but I mean, like, I know this is going to sound a bit cliche and, and it's probably, but I, I mean it very genuinely, like as much as there's been a lot to be desired from the way that our like political and media elites have responded to this stuff and the challenges of this year, I genuinely feel more connected to communities and different communities than I have in a really long time. Um, and Maybe that's me thinking about the fact that I moved into this city in the middle of lockdown and was feeling a bit anxious about about what that meant. But going through the challenge of Melbourne lockdown, being kind of being going through that with with everyone else, you feel a little bit bonded, and it's making me kind of excited for fingers crossed when society turns back to some kind of normality. Um, that we're all going to be able to enjoy the good times rather than just stress and discuss the bad times. You know, I'm kind of thinking about if you and I were having this chat this time in 2021, how much different it might be just because we've gone through some really tough things and there's such a desire to appreciate even the small things in life that are good. And I think myself and a lot of people around me want to make the most of that next year. Um uh, sorry, that might sound a little bit too earnest, or a little bit too cheesy, but it's just something that's been playing on me um, as we get closer to the actual end of the year. That's that's a fantastically honest and uh, really quite positive point to end on, and I think you're right. Osman Faruqi, thanks so much. Happy season, uh, although Christmas has just happened. Happy <laughs> New Year to, and best for you and yours. Still, thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure to chat and have an absolutely fantastic New Year's and hopefully we will do this again in 2021. I mean, that would be ideal, right, to be able to do it at least, whether we, even whether we do it or not. <laughs> thanks, Oz. Yeah, thanks, mate. See ya. Well, we're an hour into the podcast. There's plenty more to go. I mean, Mark Humphreys is coming up for starters, and in a minute we're going to be looking at China. China. How does Trump say it? China. China. No, teeth back. China. China. <sighs> anyway, uh, it's time to do the housekeeping, I think, and pass the plate. Obviously, you're used to this format by now, aren't you? Next episode's which is what I usually talk about. I'm not sure. I'm going to take a week or two just to think about what happens in 2021. Uh, but there's some background and there's three ideas. So, background. Just before Christmas, I won one of my pub raffles at a pub I go to and it was a 50-inch Samsung Ultra HD TV. Which was both fun and hilarious, but I don't need that. I don't watch much television or many films. So, there's a mate who does. So, he bought it from me. 
And then I used the money to buy a Rodecaster Pro and a few bits and pieces. Now, those of you who know podcasting technology and audio technology know that that Australian-made device uh, by Rode Microphones in Silverwater in Sydney, fucking nice piece of kit. And it will have, without going into the details, lots of benefits for me uh, doing live streams and live recordings. And also, should I add video to the mix? And also, out of my very own money, I bought one of the uh, Rode Lavalier microphones, you know, the clip-on ones that you see on television and so on, and uh, some other bits and pieces uh, from those wonderful people. Uh, So what am I going to do with them? Well, one of them is that uh, as you may remember, I occasionally do live streams and I use Spreaker for that. Spreaker has excellent mobile apps. So I've been thinking of doing occasionally brief near live reports just while out and about. So that's one thing. Secondly, I'm thinking of doing some video related stuff. Um, And I'm going to trial it. No, I've decided to do this. I'm going to trial that uh, in January and February by doing a a pilot series of three, maybe four episodes of a live stream pub trivia quiz type thing. I mean, you might like that. Uh, And I'm going to focus a bit more. Well, I don't know quite what the episodes will be like, but I think another short series like this one will help or at least be amusing. I will tell you more about all that in January. So expect some news in the new year, in that first week. Anyway, as you know, this podcast is made possible by you, the generous listener, isn't it? And this episode, I will say... Uh, thank you once more and finally to all the people who contributed to the 9pm Edict's uh, End of Spring series 2020. This is the last episode in that series. I mean, it's past the end of spring, but you know how accurate I am at these things. All of you lovely people are listed on the website, except for those who aren't, because they wanted to stay anonymous. In this episode, or for this episode in particular, it's also thank you to Dave Gorkridger. Dave Gorkridger. I knew I'd fuck that up. Uh, who has been a long-time listener. He's now a new schooner-level subscriber. So thanks, Dave. Uh, Frank Sting, I'll use his uh, Twitter handle rather than his actual name. You'll hear more from him uh, a little later. Kimberly Heitman, a regular contributor, thank you so much. And one person who chooses to remain anonymous but who says, love your work. Well, I love your work too. Well, I, I don't know anything about your work. I, I love your contributions. If you would like to join all of those lovely people and all of the people who I really should mention some of the regular subscribers again as uh, their subscriptions come up for renewal, thank you so much There's a whole bunch of you supporting this and you make it possible. If you are not yet one of these people and you enjoy it, well, even if you don't enjoy the podcast, one, tell people about it, please. That's one of the most important things at the moment would be building up the audience. Uh, And you can do that for free, right? You can just tell people, email email them now. You know, just forward the link. 
tweet it. Put it on Facebook if you're on Facebook. Put it on Parler if you're there. Although I doubt many people on Parler are listening to this podcast. If you want to, if you want to join them in all of that, go to the 9pmedic.com/tip. The 9pmedic.com/tip. That will show you many ways of sending me money. And there's a link through to the various levels of subscription. And if you subscribe, uh, you can uh, get trigger words or conversation topics. And one of the things I'm going to be doing in that first week of January is starting to set up the little secret archive of little bits and pieces for subscribers. I'm going to start off with a couple of really embarrassing old photographs of me. So obviously don't share them with anyone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, like that's going to work. Please go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip. Do it now. Give us a cuddle. The Prime Minister wants an international inquiry into how a disease infected the world. Our purpose here is just pretty simple. Um... We'd like the world to be safer when it comes to viruses. And a World Health Organisation that doesn't have to beg countries to let it investigate outbreaks. The Chinese government says there's no evidence the disease originated in Wuhan, while other advocates here argue China's health warnings were timely. Western nations are eager to blame someone for their own mistakes. I'm here today to advise you that based on advice provided to me by our cyber experts, Australian organisations are currently being targeted by a sophisticated state-based cyber actor. Neither the Prime Minister or his deputy will say China is responsible. I'm not saying uh, which which, uh, country or which uh, operative has had any involvement here. But national security experts like Peter Jennings will. There is absolutely no doubt that um, Australia has been subject to a massive cyber attack from China. Beijing's growing aggression and Canberra's pushback has seen the relationship sour. While a rift between husband and wife hurts one family, a rift between two countries hurts millions. Wang Jining rejects the idea that Beijing's mounting trade sanctions are economic coercion or that Australia is being punished. We don't see Australia as a strategic threat. Well, yes, 2020, 2020. I think it's fair to say that Australia's relationship with China has not gone well this year, has it? A trade war including everything from coal and iron to barley, wine and and lobsters, obviously, and the spat over what's effectively a political cartoon. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I listened to the Lawfare podcast and I heard Yun Jiang, I should have checked, Jiang Jiang. Uh, the, first, the way that you said the first time was great. Jiang, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yun Jiang, who you, that's her there. Uh, I heard her talk about the whole China thing and I thought I've got to get her on the pod and I was successful, as you've just heard. Uh, Yun is editor of the China Story blog at ANU, a director of the China Policy Institute and she is here with birds in the background. Yun, welcome. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Look, I have to ask you up front, your Twitter bio says you're an historical nihilist or nihilist who likes to provoke <laughs> trouble. What do you mean by that? So I th- it's, it's actually a joke. And if you don't, uh, if you haven't been studying 
China probably wouldn't really get it. So historical nihilism is what Xi Jinping criticized um, those scholars who actually study history from a non-official um, Chinese uh, government narrative. So if you ah. say, for example, uh, that uh, maybe the Chinese uh, Communist Party is not the greatest thing ever, then um, you can be accused of historical nihilism by the All Chinese right. Communist Party. So when I say I'm a historical nihilist, I'm basically saying that, you know, I don't subscribe to the official um, Chinese Communist Party narrative of history. And provoking trouble uh, is actually a crime in China. Uh, ah. Causing quarrels and provoking trouble is its full name. It is usually used, often used against um, dissidents. Um, so when someone who speak out, uh, for example, about democracy, they don't really have a crime for that. So usually the crime they give out is causing trouble and uh, sorry, provoking trouble and causing quarrels. Right. This is all in that that. I mean, in a way, I love the use of language. I studied linguistics and the the understated nature of what the crime is. It's like being disharmonious. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly right. So basically, if you see that kind of uh, crime being uh, that kind of charge, then you know that basically it, it, they, they don't really have a reason for arresting them. <laughs> yeah. Now... The trade war, which I think, I mean, we can joke about the whole lobster thing and how getting cheap lobster in Australia is a big plus from the trade war. I suspect that that's really where it hit most Australians because they're not in the coal industry or iron ore industry. Where, How did this all start? Well, it's not really exactly right to say it is a trade war. Okay. Um, it is basically a symptom of the deterioration of the bilateral relationship. And that has been happening for at least uh, two to three years now. Mm -hmm. So where did it all start? We know that um, China has been becoming more assertive internationally about you know, its interests. Mm -hmm. And there are increasing concerns around the world, especially in Western countries, about this increasing assertiveness of China. And some countries start to respond. Um, so in terms of the bilateral relationship between China and Australia, I think the turning point was in 2017-2018 when Australia introduces a, introduced the foreign interference legislation now, the foreign interference legislation, of course, is country neutral. Mm -hmm. um, legislation itself does not mention any country. But um, at the time of introduction, it is, was quite obviously targeted at China. And there's a sense that only foreign interference from China was a concern. And that obviously did not uh, please the Chinese government very much. And the second thing that ha happened was the ban on Huawei which uh, other countries have also done. But Australia was, I think, the first country that banned Huawei, but also yes. was very instrumental in basically um, pushing other countries to follow. And uh, from China's perspective, it was not um, it was not in line with that in its interest. It was contrary to China's interest. Um, so it was also very unhappy with Australia. And that has been going on for a while. Ever since then, 
there was uh, media reports about the Australian government being put into deep freeze by the Chinese government, which means that um, Australian government ministers were struggling to get any um, meetings with Chinese government officials. And then this year, uh, things got even more heated up. Um, I guess the one thing that uh, happened was the call for independent inquiry um, into the origin of COVID by the Australian government. And uh, after that, the Chinese ambassador to Australia basically was signaling that trade uh, uh, trade actions is on the table. And they certainly have been, haven't they? We've we've still got bulk carriers of coal and iron ore waiting around off Chinese ports for what months now, isn't it? Yes, coal. Uh, it started off with barley and there's also wine uh, but i think iron ore at the moment is still unaffected as much as oh, okay. i know now that is interesting and i find it also interesting uh we mentioned it on this podcast uh a few weeks ago wine in particular that's been picked up by both the trump administration and taiwan as a thing and i saw that the taiwan uh foreign ministry tweeted uh, that we should buy Australian wine because it's hashtag freedom wine. I mean, that is that is such a troll against China. Yes, yes. And also the United States um, National Security Council also said they were serving Australian wine as well. Mm. Now, obviously, um, this is all very good that the Australian government is getting such support. But um, it's quite unlikely that other countries will be able to um, feel the demand that is left by China. Well, no, there was a a news report the other day where farmers were saying, look, the government should find better and bigger markets than China. And I was thinking, wait, wait, who, who, what? Yeah. That's not a thing. Unfortunately, it is very difficult to find a bigger and better market. Um, You know, India, we we talk a lot about India being possibly the next China, but uh, the Indian economy is still relatively small compared to China. And this year, it experienced negative growth as well. So putting that together, and I'll come to another issue in a minute, but looking at the trade side, our international relations... How well is Australia handling this? Um, I would say not so well. I think when the Australian government started to uh, be so vocal about countering China, I'm not sure if it had in mind the consequences that we are seeing now. Certainly, um, there are a lot of challenges um, to do with a rising China, a more assertive China, a China that is authoritarian and commit grievous um, human rights abuses. That's, of course, um, we we, we cannot deny that. Mm. But the way that Australia has handled it, um, well, for one thing, um, Australia being a middle power should be more concerned with um, getting the support of other like-minded countries before going out so 
strongly against China. No, we're not like the United States where we have a lot of leverage. And the power we have is to work with other countries. And I don't think Australia has really done that, especially with the call for independent inquiry into the origin of COVID. Mm. We basically made a very big announcement about, you know, weapon uh, inspector powers and other countries didn't really say anything. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, um, you know, other countries have also passed legislations like countering foreign interference. And those issues are very important in Australia domestically. Um, You know, national security is, of course, very important. But the way we go about when we um, introduce such such legislation, uh, when we did the, for example, raids um, on specific people, um, these are um, they were Chinese journalists or embassy workers? Yes, uh, Chinese journalists. Hmm. Um, we tend to really publicly, almost very confrontational about China. Um, there are ways we could still uh, look after our own national interest and still, you know, legislate um, certain laws that is in our national interest. We could still block uh, foreign investment if it is contrary to our national interest. But uh, we don't have to use such harsh and confrontational rhetoric when we do that. And when, when I look at other countries in the region, such as countries in Southeast Asia, they are, of course, also very concerned about um, the increasing assertiveness of China, but I think they have managed the relationship a lot better. Hmm. Now, turning to another subject, and yes, we, we do have to talk about this. Back in October, uh, one of this podcast's favourite senators, Senator Erica Betts, uh, <laughs> look, I will, I'll play the clip for those who haven't heard it. This is from a Senate committee in October. Can I simply say that if we're talking about certain uh, diaspora populations being underrepresented, um, if that were to be the criteria, then myself, being an immigrant from a non-English speaking background representing the state of Tasmania, I am overrepresenting that cohort of Tasmanians. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the, there are other factors lot more important to be considered than skin colour, ethnic origin, I would suggest to you. But can I ask each of the three witnesses to very briefly uh, tell me whether they are willing to unconditionally condemn the uh, the Chinese Communist Party dictatorship? Not a difficult question. Um, would you, Ms. Ms. Jung, would you have to start and then we'll go to Mr. Chu and then Ms. Chow? Um, as I have uh, stated in a lot of my public statements, I condemn the grievous human rights abuses uh, done by the um, Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party. But I also have said before that I don't think it's fair to ask, um, I don't think it's fair to for some, or Chinese Australians to take a position or political action uh, when similar requests are not being made to other Australians. What, what, what on earth was that all about? 
that was exactly what I was thinking at the time as well. Um, I think for those people that have not been involved on debate with China, they may not realize that the whole China debate has become very, very polarized and toxic. Mm. There is almost a sense that you're either for China, anti-China or pro-China, and there's nothing in between. And by virtue of being pro-engagement or pro-relationship, you are often deemed as anti-Australia. This is a very common narrative right now in the China debate. Um, and I guess, I, I, I mean, I, I am not a mind reader of Senator Betts. I don't really <laughs> no, know what and, got uh, into him. Yes, let's not go into the mind of Erica Betts. <laughs> that sounds a terrible place to be. But I guess um, from a lot of people's perspectives, um, unless you publicly denounce the Chinese Communist Party, then there should be questions and suspicions about you. And that's a very hard place as well for people from, you know, uh, Chinese Australian, Chinese Australians, because, you know, the three of us, there were three people there. Yes. Um, we are there, we were called, we were invited to be on a, a public hearing to talk about issues affecting diaspora. Now, we made submissions on different sorts of issues, nothing to do with um, Chinese Communist Party um, uh, essentially. Um, but somehow we were all asked about our views of the Chinese Communist Party. Now you may say, okay, well, that's a reasonable question. But that question was never asked of anyone else. Only the three of us. And really the only thing common was that we are all of Chinese-Australian background. You know, one uh, one was born in Hong Kong, I was born in mainland China, and one was born in Australia. Um, so we all made a submission on different issues and we all have different background, but somehow we were all called there to answer the question about what we think of the Chinese Communist Party. And later on, I realized that they didn't really ask any question about what I've um, talked about or what I've written, which is a very important issue of foreign interference. Um, but it, it's quite obvious that they're only concerned about my uh, my view of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, I think it was quite it was a political stunt. And oh. I was unfortunately involved in that. I am not a political person myself. So I guess I, I was a bit unprepared to, I, and I was very shocked to hear the question. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm not very happy about being uh, <laughs> involved in a political stunt, I have to say. We better move on from that, but... Uh, <sighs> Uh, we could talk about this for ages, I know, because I'm fascinated by uh, the rise of China. And in, in my work reporting on the technical aspects, yes, uh, Huawei has been a thing, cyber espionage has been a thing, uh, and I've been deeply down those uh, wombat warrens, I've been told to say, not rabbit holes, <laughs> the Australian. <laughs> has this year taught you anything about human nature? Because... Uh, because I've, part of what feeds into that, and I should have said this before, 
the sense that Chinese Australians are somehow the enemy is not a recent thing. I mean, it goes back to even pre-Federation days, of course. Yes, yes. Um, actually, I was, I didn't know too much about the history of um, Chinese people in Australia until quite recently. Ah. And I think, and now, now that I know a little bit more, I realized that it is quite difficult for us to really get a full picture of what's happening without knowing the history of Australia. Mm. Um, with human nature, I think one thing I have learned this year is <laughs> how much confirmation bias um, is there in terms of reporting and in terms of research. There's a lot of reports on China that's coming out almost every day right now. Um, some of the research is very good. Other research lacks any evidence or proper logic in terms of analysis. Yet, because they confirm an existing narrative about, a China, uh, about China, then they are being reported um, basically in all news outlets. What happens is usually um, uh, a scholar sends some kind of research to one news media, which are pe perhaps uh, less stringent when it comes to assessing research. And then that gets picked up by other media around the world and that somehow spins into a story. I can give quite a few examples this year um, in China research. But it is quite concerning that these kind of things can snowball, that once we have a narrative of a certain aspect of China, a China that behaves in a certain way, then subsequently anything, any evidence that confirms it will just suddenly get picked up and that will just get into the mind of people. And if it gets retracted later, no one really remembers it, the retraction. Uh, that That is the case across nearly all news reporting, I must say. Uh, do you have any hopes for 2020 now, that, uh, 2021, I should say, now that, now that we've had such an awful year in every dimension? How are you feeling about 2021? <laughs> um, I am um, hopeful in some respect um, that 2021 will be better than 2020. Um, I think, you know, once um, people start to travel again, hopefully next year, there'll be a stronger people-to-people -people links that people will... Uh, become more understanding of each other, perhaps uh, once they get out a bit more, then they get um, less um, caught up by um, all these, um, I guess, uh, conflicts and uh, mm, <laughs> people yeah. uh, arguing with each other. I, I, I hope that... Um, 2021 will bring a little bit more understanding. And on that note, thank you so much for your time, Yun Jiang. Thank you. Should you want to relive the full experience of Senator Erica Betts harassing three Australian Chinese people who'd come to give evidence to the Senate hearing... I've put the audio clip 
and the Hansard transcript on the website. Uh, and also to follow up uh, Yun's comments today, as we record it, 29th of December, there was a further news story. This is from The Guardian. Australia is pushing to ensure this global inquiry it helped to trigger into the early handling of COVID-19 doesn't pull any punches. It's a move that has the potential to risk further recriminations from China. Uh, there's scepticism among several government bank benches, like Senator Erica Betts, I assume, that the inquiry uh, will fully address the Chinese authorities' early missteps and reporting delays. Australia is using its final months on a top World Health Organization board to press for the investigation to remain robust and independent. Uh, the Health Department was asked whether Australia was satisfied with China's level of cooperation. The Health Department spokesperson told Guardian Australia... Australia encourages all countries to engage openly and constructively with the evaluation process. <laughs> yeah. Hinting that, uh, obviously, China isn't. I think that calls for a drink, right? Uh, I spoiled myself with uh, some 12-year-old scotch. It's... Uh uh, the Balvenie uh, Double Wood matured in two distinct casks. One atom each, they divided up. An atom to that one, another atom to that one. Well, molecule, molecules. We did get one listener trigger word coming in for this episode. Frank Sting mentioned, friend of the pod. Hello, sir. He's Irish, you know. Uh, he's been trying to work up a, a composite sort of word about killing all the bloody coals. K-O-E-L-S. Um, if you don't know what a coal is, listen to this. Ah, <coughs> uh, yes, the Pacific coal, you Dynamis orientalis. Uh, so that's also uh, the eastern coal. It's a kind of cuckoo, really. Um, and in Australia, it's, it's sometimes called, apparently, uh, the rainbird or the stormbird, uh, because it says in the pedia uh, that their call is usually more prevalent before or during stormy weather. But imagine that. Imagine that coal outside your bedroom window all night and doing this sound, that sound, for like about six hours continuously. Because that's pretty much what they do at this time of year. And as they migrate into Sydney, because they spend the the other part of the year up in Papua New Guinea and Indonesia and places like that, they come back to exactly the same spot, exactly the same tree. So if you get yourself a friendly coal, you've got it every year. Sick of it yet? Yeah, I bet you are. So, 
Frank Stings obviously wants to kill the fucker, and and I don't blame him. Uh, <laughs> I don't mind them so much. I've had one live near me, um, but they are really loud. So, what do you what do you call it? Um, you know, when you want to get rid of them, is it you know a coal murder? Is it coal culling? I like coal culling, but I th- I think the best one that I could come up with is coal slaughter. You get the joke? Coal slaughter, like coal slaw, cabbage. Uh, thank you to Frank Sting for uh, financing that extremely short and and relatively pointless part of the podcast. Twenty twenty is closing down, and the vaccine is around the corner, which means everything twenty twenty must go. Face masks, hand sanitizer, whatever the f- this is, with any luck, it's all going out the door. Digital thermometers, infrared thermometers, thermometers you stick up your ass, take them off our hands, because we simply don't want to ever see a thermometer again. Zoom meetings, Zoom drinks, Zoom weddings, Zoom backgrounds. Yes, some of them are quite creative and funny, but they can still f- off. We've just got no room for them in our warehouse or brain. We've got to get rid of them. Quarantinis, QAnon, Quibi. Hang on, what was Quibi? Exactly! But now you've interrupted my train of thought. There was another one that started with Q. QR codes? I don't know. I, I feel like QR codes have been really helpful and they've actually really come into their own this year. So that's why they can f*** off! Bread makers, pasta makers, mucking around with pangolins. You better believe we're not doing that again. Our warehouse is closing for deep cleaning and we're going to scrub all the 2020 off. So get it now while it lasts. Homeschooling, singing opera on your balcony, retreating to a cabin in the woods like the Unabomber and recording folk music. We'll have no room for any of this in 2021. Daily press conferences, crushes on chief medical officers, government apps that don't even work. We just need them out of our warehouse and our lives. Roadmaps to reopening, adjusting to the new normal. Stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four restrictions. We simply must get rid of all of it! Plus, we're saying goodbye to 2020's most overused phrases. Unprecedented, in a year like no other, now more than ever, all of them stricken from the vocabulary. Say them next year and I'll wash your mouth out with bleach. That said, we are all in this together. Just kidding, that can f*** off too! The 2020 closing down sale, for a year never to be repeated. We f***ing hope. That's the wonderful Mark Humphreys, of course, in his final ABC 7.30 spot for 2020, which I so totally didn't ask anyone whether I could play it or not, but I have. And the wonderful Mark Humphreys is right here, right now. (laughs) Welcome, sir. Thank you. I'm very pro-copyright infringement, so don't worry. (laughs) 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 Accepting. Actually, I I immediately retract that. I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in this context, you know, and, and fair use of, uh, you know, comedic content uh, to uh, and anything that promotes, uh, you know, fine Australian work. That said, uh, there is a genuine issue in uh, the design industry <laughs> related to product design where copycat uh, design, the Australian, there, there are issues related to uh, copyright and uh, I used to work in a homeware shop. So I won't get down that path. But that's a, a real issue. Copycats of, of um, you know, chair designs and bars and all sorts of things. Oh, uh, yes. They run rampant. Um, you know, Matt Black is a company that's particularly been, uh, you know, responsible for the proliferation of, uh, you know, lookalikes. Um, and uh, but that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> Well, well I, I think so. And I, I will say this podcast operates under the uh, uh, 
the rule that it is commenting on news and events in the news, uh, which gets it through as uh, fair dealing under various sections of the Copyright Act. Quit review and all that sort of stuff, yes. That's that's right. And and we're properly crediting it and so on because, of course, uh, it is created by you and your co-writer, Evan Williams, and congratulations for winning an Augie. Oh, thank you very much. I don't like to bring up the fact that uh, we are Australian Writers Guild Award winners, nor do I like to mention the fact that I won Australia's Celebrity Mastermind, but I'm glad that you brought up at least one of those. Um, yes, and, well, uh, I, I had for the moment forgotten about Celebrity Mastermind, but yes, you really did ace that. <laughs> that was my highlight. And what really gets me, Adam Lior was on, right, mm-hmm. and he did quite well, but he – his questions are on Southeast Asian food, mm-hmm. and I knew things he didn't. And he's an actual, <laughs> he's an actual Southeast Asian descendant person. So and, uh, I was very disappointed well, in him. But that, but you must have felt good though. I mean, that's good for you oh, as a viewer to be able to lord it over. over. Um, <laughs> we'll, have, you'll, after, you'll, uh, we'll have to get you onto Adam's uh, cooking show because he's got he's, next year on SBS. He's got a he's got a new show called The Cook Up. You got to be careful how oh, you okay. deliver that. The Cook Up, <laughs> and two hundred episodes he has to make. I mean, that's mental. What? And that's four a um, week, exactly. So I've had to. They wrote or me in five or five a week. Five, yeah, on a, oh. yeah. So they roped me in for four. I've I've just recorded four episodes of that in one day, um, and I'm not a particularly strong cook, so I was, you know, can I say shitting myself? Um, and uh, but Adam can cook, fortunately. So I had a very I had a lovely day, and you know, just got to eat um, his food. But um, <laughs> yeah, so look forward to that in uh, in 2021. But Adam, I remember at the time. I think Adam. Uh, I think Adam maybe did because what happens with Celebrity Mastermind, this is obviously what you wanted to know. Uh, is uh, yeah, yeah. The, the more <laughs> detail of all the minutiae of exactly how Celebrity Mastermind works, <laughs> that's that's what everyone's that's what here for. Uh, yeah, exactly. I know your audience. Very well. I'll let it go. But no, I'll, I'll, I'll just say I think maybe he didn't put as much time studying it because I think he – I think he does know the things generally, but just not in the kind of academic sense. So, um, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's my, I'm giving him an out. <laughs> uh, which brings us, uh, I think, well, it doesn't really bring us to any of these things, uh, but um, <laughs> seamless segue. Yeah. Yes. Speaking uh, well, I was of Ozpol, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, look, let's. There you go. Speaking of Ozpol, which is a terrible hashtag, I have it muted on the Twitter. You've got and it muted, I, don't you? Yes. This is. The, yeah. Do you know? This is true. I never ever, ever tweet with the Ozpol hashtag because I know you won't see it. And I know I need still to be able to see my content. And so even though I know obviously a lot of people follow that hashtag and there's you know benefits to you know being on a topic and what have you, the fact that you don't follow it also leads, leads me to believe that probably lots of other people who don't as well because uh, – you know, There's a few, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, there are people who have gone through the entire year muting the word Trump. For example, <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, uh, they just day, don't I mean, want to hear anymore. There's a podcast in that. It should be just a show called "Who've You Muted," and it's like you know, let, we just talk about which accounts you've muted, which hashtags, and it's just basically. It, I think that's a very revealing thing about someone to say because like blocking is like a really kind of dramatic act, but the muting is a sort of subtle like 
Uh, I'm just, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm happy for you to exist in the world. I just don't want you coming into my bubble. <laughs> so, sticking with seven thirty for a bit, for a while. A bit, mm-hmm. I, I mean, this is well structured, as as I've explained. Well, I've ruined the structure. I think you had a structure, and then I started telling you about the ins and outs of Celebrity Mastermind. So this is this really. Well, we can me, go back to that. <laughs> and we will. Because <laughs> um, you notes. did do very well. I, mean, I thought it was quite good. I mean, I know fuck all about musicals except I did with the Snarky Platypus, friend of the pod, and who mm-hmm. helped me last year review the uh, Arnott's new Aussie Legends shapes in cheese and Vegemite flavour and uh, sausage sizzle flavour. And good. <laughs> um, they're all right. I mean, we did compare them with the actual things. So I, you know cooked up some sausages and got some cheap white bread. Anyway, people on the podcast have heard that, but you haven't. Um, Yeah, look, the the sausage sizzle ones are quite good, but the Vegemite and cheese one had that kind of tanginess that really stayed with you, and I'm desperately trying to remember what the third flavour was. It was something. uh, It was, I don't know. I, I, I'm quite fond of, you know, because when, you know, when we were growing up, I know we're not exactly the same age, but, you know, even I think comparatively our, our childhoods would have been quite similar. The, the, the range of chip flavors was quite limited. You know, I think light yeah. and tangy oh, is yeah. about as sort of exotic as things got. And oh, chicken, so I, and yeah, <laughs> chicken and chicken barbecue. Chicken twisties. So, yeah. And so I kind of, I'm sort of embracing the, you know, this era of, camembert and fig and whatever you know the sort of things are but, but I, I do draw a line um i don't like it i don't like it when it's when a chip is trying to be a different um how would i call it what would we call it uh, does chip fall under a bigger uh, i guess it's a snack i don't want i don't like it when a chip tries to be a different snack there was a brief thing a few years ago when i think smiths or what have you were running a competition and like they were they like trialed four new flavors and to decide which one you know would continue and one of the flavors of a chip was buttered popcorn and so i don't think one snack should try to be another snack that's my rule firstly uh i don't like anything where it's like the flavor is like slow cooked pork like i don't i think that's very that's too specific and i don't believe that you did put that pork in there for eight hours i think i don't like i that feels like a lie to me Sticky wings flavor. If the chip is then not sticky, I don't know how it can have the flavor of sticky wings. These are, you know, I, I, I don't want to waste your time, but I clearly am. But this is what keeps me up at night. <laughs> no, I think this is important um, um, <laughs> because you will be horrified to know that oh, no. just recently in the supermarket I saw Lamington flavored chips. What is this about? Yeah, that's exactly that falls into the thing trying to be another thing. Um, no, no, no. I mean, I love Lamingtons, don't get me wrong. And I'm the sort of idiot that does try. I, I probably will try it. I, I, I'll give anything <laughs> one of those. I mean, there were like, I think there was like satay flavored Pringles. And, uh, oh, yeah. and I thought, oh, but the clue that it was a bad idea was that it was like, um, heavily discounted, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, uh, and I was like, I love satay, but it was, I mean, it was, I don't like to waste food, but I, I ate one and I bin bin the packet, so that's a that's a no from <laughs> no from me. Well, I will I will say that aren't it's uh, Aussie Legends shapes are usually going up uh, half price. 
at the supermarkets just to keep moving them through. Someone's got a contract. They're stuck with them. Uh, But if you want to see some astounding crisp flavours, check out your local uh, Asian supermarket because Lay's brand crisps come in a whole lot of um, Southeast Asian flavours. Get out of town. I didn't know that. That's they fantastic. do. They're amazing things. I'm, what, like I can't think of any just now. Or something like that? Yep. Or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Luxa flavoured, you know, not 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 white people's Asian food, so not sweet and sour pork or, or you know, Szechuan <laughs> beef or something like that, but, <laughs> yeah. but proper everyday. You won't find everyday... one called oriental flavour, whatever that is. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's bad. So Scott Morrison, hasn't he really come into his own this year? Well, the king of the king of foreign flavors, of course, um, but uh, he come into his own. The uh, <laughs> my goodness. Well, I'm thinking bushfires. I'm thinking COVID. Uh, he's he's certainly stopped the boats. Brackets going to China. The <laughs> well, here's the thing about Scott Morrison, and I'm not saying anything particularly original here, but after um, I'm convinced he'll be prime minister for a decade. Basically, and wow. I, like, I think I think, and I think I think he's. This is not it's not an endorsement. It's just me saying I think he's mastered. You know, as much as you know, the sort of I can't believe when he's the word Twitterati, but for what for one of a better explanation, <laughs> those of us on Twitter, very much as we like to sneer about his kind of daggy dad persona, and Scotty for marketing and all the hashtags and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I think for your average person, I think that's fine. I think they, I think they think that totally works. And you know he mispronounces bar, and he goes and does a bar class. Yeah, great. You know that's that uh, smart. I just think I think he's really worked out how to just be really ordinary in a really effective way. Um, and so I think I think yeah, I think he's going to be around for a long time unless Labor finds some kind of firebrand who is just you know charisma nine thousand and you know takes the country <laughs> by storm. Yeah, yeah, there's so many signs of that happening out there. <laughs> I mean, it have Hamish Blake would have to become the leader of the Labor Party, I think, for you know, it would have to be one of those just sort of universally loved, you know, people. Wow. Uh, uh, to well, but I you know, but don't you think that sort of like the celebrity I, I sort of think about this a lot with Trump and everything, is that in it's sort of I do wonder whether in the future just every politician will be a celebrity because it's just kind of it's so much easier to just kind of if you've already got your you know for argument's sake instagram following or tiktok or twitter or what have you to just kind of because like pete evans for instance i imagine most <laughs> oh, of those no. people start no no but don't you think most of those people started because they like they started following because they like my kitchen rules i don't i don't necessarily sure. think that they were already kind of you know that way inclined and then, no, 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 no. They were following the celebrity chef, and then the celebrity chef went down a wombat warren. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I kind of, I don't know. Part of me wonders whether in the future the smart thing really is for you know this is a year that. Sorry, I'm jumping all over the place, but like you no, know, there's right. a lot of discussion about <laughs> like friendly. That's the format of the podcast, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a lot of discussion about friendly Geordies this year, and, and just sort of you know the media sort of reckoning with. It was the first time where you sort of felt the media kind of go, or an element of the media go, oh, there's this other kind of thing going on at the moment, which is not a traditional model, and it seems to kind of galvanise people, and uh, it seems quite effective. And so, uh, I kind of I'm interested to see what that looks like 
five years from now and what sort of political candidates we have. Not, I don't know. I don't know him. I don't, I don't know what if he would go into politics, but just you know, what sort of people will be coming up in future, and whether that sort of celebrity influencer character, you know, will be become more sort of potent. That is interesting because, I mean, yes, profile is important, but when you do become an actual working politician, a working MP, there is there is actual work involved. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But there's still posturing. I mean, there's still, you know, but when you think about the Senate, there's work involved. But, like, I think a senator, is, can, be a, a senator can be a little bit more performative. You know, I think yes. Pauline Hanson, I'm sure she has to read something. But, like, she... <laughs> well, I but, mean, that's it. You don't have to read it, right, unless yeah, yeah. you're on committees, unless yeah, you actually yeah. put your name down to do the actual work of the Senate. Sure. But I think there are senators who, you know, it's about grandstanding and it's about posting the video and it's about doing the playing the culture wars game and, and all that sort of stuff and arguing over political correctness and, you know, squat toilets and whatever other things. So, you know, things Important that don't, you know, Yeah, exactly. That's it. So, I kind of feel like, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I, I, you know, because I don't want to believe that we're, we'll go down the American path, but, you know, I think there are certainly clues in what's happened there as to where our system can go wrong if we get, you know, too complacent. Going back to Scott Morrison, one thing I think uh, that's been amazing in the last uh, few weeks, we're really becoming aware of how much he has fucked up our relationship with China, right? They've... No, no barley going into China, no wine, no iron ore. I'll come back to wine in a minute. Remind me to come back to wine. No okay. iron ore. And now no lobsters and no coal. I mean, that's Christmas ruined right there, <laughs> except we've got cheap lobster. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I kind of – yeah, how, how – like I, maybe I'm sure someone's writing about this at the moment. How screwed are we still? Like <laughs> – <laughs> what 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 is what's the actual economic impact of this? What are we what are we really looking at? Because that's what I'm not quite clear. Well, on. coal <laughs> coal is our uh, either first or second biggest export. Iron ore is the other one, and I can't remember which order they come in. And that uh, genius of economics, the economics editor of the Australian, Adam Creighton. It's funny. It's funny. You as soon as soon as you said genius of economics, I knew who you were going to say. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. he tweeted the other day, and apparently, like, I didn't click through to the article, but he said to show China that we're not happy, we should ban Chinese foreign students coming to Australia. Now, foreign students is our third biggest right. export. Gotcha. And China is, oddly enough, being such a big nation, the biggest <laughs> contributor to that. So we'll show you, we'll cut off our own foot. Um, yeah, I. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the guy. I. I went. No, I was at a wedding. I, no. was at, I was at a wedding with him once. I was, I was told later on that he'd been at a wedding that I'd been at, um, and it was only shortly after I'd, I think I'd publicly criticised him for using the word leftards. Um, uh, he but, is a bit of a cunt, though. But, <laughs> I, I, you know, no, <laughs> I'm no just setting the benchmark for commentary <laughs> on this podcast. Obviously, <laughs> why aren't you on the insider's couch? I don't know. Oh, I've got hashtag insiders muted as well. Oh, do you? Right, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, but yeah, I mean, just on the Crichton thing, 
Crichton, Crichton. Um, Crichton. Crichton, Crichton, Crichton. One person I've not missed. Well, someone someone who kind of became such so sort of prominent during the pandemic and someone I'm kind of enjoying not seeing as much of now is, I, I don't even like saying these people's names, Tim Smith. Like these oh. people who just, they see an opportunity to make a name for themselves uh, by just being a sort of, just a kind of public troll. Um, yes. And uh, that was just one of those things where just, he just uh, people kept retweeting him into my timeline, but in that kind of look at this guy kind of way. And it was one of those things, and this is an argument that you can have about many, many people. It's just like, to what extent should we amplify these voices Keeping in mind, of course, if, you, if they're already elected, then, you know, they should be held to scrutiny and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's, I kind of, I feel like he's one of those people, and I'm even doing it now by talking about him, that we've kind of, we've kind of built up his profile for him. Mm, he's mm. done the kind of, you know, yeah, the troll work, and then we've somehow sort of come to help him, to elevate him to a, a new role. And I don't know enough about the Victorian Liberal Party to see what sort of, to say what sort of... Um, potential he has in terms of you know rising the rank uh, the ranks but um oh, yeah, he thinks that's... he's he thinks he's the one obviously right okay so i mean can you name the leader of the liberal party in victoria i couldn't i couldn't tell you no, <laughs> no neither could i no <laughs> I, that's not a joke i'm not doing no. that for the effect i no, really no, I can't remember no. <laughs> but this is i mean this is the other thing i'm looking forward to about uh, theoretically about the biden administration is i'm really looking forward to not knowing anyone's names uh, of people that mm. in the administration i don't like being able to name three white house you know communications you know spokespeople like, i i don't i don't like being able, i don't like that i know who uh sarah huckabee huckabee sanders or sean mm. spice or kelly Ma- i don't like that i know those names i couldn't tell you who filled those roles in, under obama like that's the way it should be. We, the ideal version is we don't know anything about politics. Like, that's, that's the, <laughs> well, that's my well, utopia. Most Australians are in that joyful yeah, situation, exactly. aren't they? And that's exactly right. And you can, and then the results speak for themselves. But, <laughs> but they're happy. They're having a good time. <laughs> Look at us. Oh dear. <laughs> Oh, that's really quite depressing, really, isn't it? Uh, we have mentioned. Let's do. Let's be slightly serious for a bit, maybe. Please. Uh, oh. I have mentioned the Rona, and we uh, every guest on this podcast through the uh, through the period, I've asked how how the COVIDs have affected you personally, and I I say that in the context because you do have a young family. Mm-hmm. What's it been like for you? I mean, our situation is kind of weird because I've got a lot of in-laws living with us. My wife is from Russia, so we've had her mm. at different times. We've had her parents, her brother um, with us. Wow, does so- Sky News know about this? Oh, <laughs> 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 let that go. And uh, <sighs> I mean, Sky, I, 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 I have, we can have a five-hour conversation on this. Anyway, um so we've had a lot of people in the house. Um, so I kind of being in the idea of kind of being trapped with a lot of people in my house was not particularly um, appealing. So I was quite, re- I was quite. It's already a gulag. Yeah, I was quite lucky that uh, for seven thirty, for instance, I had a reason that I needed to get out of the house. Mm, um, mm. You know, even if it was only <laughs> once a fortnight. Um, 
yeah, it was, especially early on, I mean, that was so surreal. I remember just ca- catching the train, going across the Harbour Bridge and, uh, like, just being the only person on my carriage and just really feeling like just like end of days kind of vibe. But I, I've got to mm. say, I mean, I've blocked out most of, I think I've blocked out most of that period. I don't really, um, I you know, I think I just sort of, uh you know work from home a lot obviously and kind of spend a lot of time with my two um my two boys and um it was okay you know i I just think and i just think we're really lucky compared to other countries so i don't i don't like to be kind of like oh you know we had a terrible time i I feel i feel like we you know relatively speaking um you know we we we, we did all right and uh and all the bad things i I just can't remember (laughs) um yeah. Mm, mm. So it was if right. I remember correctly, your good lady wife has like a proper job, doesn't she? Yeah, she works in a real yeah industry. Um, yeah, so um, <laughs> yeah, she yeah she's a normal person, which is quite grounding, really, because she's sort of not mm. impressed by retweets or <laughs> anything like that. So yeah. it sort of doesn't you know I can come out you know I can win celebrity mastermind, but at the end of the day. Uh, you know the nappy is changing, and you know what's in the oven, and all that sort of stuff. So, <laughs> so did you win Celebrity Mastermind? I don't like to bring it up. Um, no, but I did. I did, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. So yeah. So no, it's um, it's been it's, it's been all right. I know it's a boring answer, but I just I, I it's been it's been okay. I just the big thing for me was I really didn't like I didn't like I, I'm a big like I love eating out i love cafes and restaurants mm. and stuff and i really hated having to kind of buy things and then go i really missed just sitting down and having you know a stir fry or whatever you know a curry or you know you know saying like scott morrison now but yeah mm. I, I, I i that was the thing early on that drove me nuts was that you kind of had to keep moving you just couldn't you, you couldn't stop anywhere it was like take the food get out of here we don't you know, you know, we don't want to breathe your air. Uh, we don't trust you. Um, so I, I don't miss that period. I will say these curry references, uh, yes, are brought to their extreme in a sketch, which I I won't play because there's some visual bits to it and I'm going to do some more uh, copyright infringement later. Uh, but in the, the War on 2020, the live stream uh, jointly from The Chaser and The Shovel mm-hmm. uh, the other day, um, which I enjoyed very much, Thank you. Uh, there is a wonderful sketch about Scott Morrison and curry. Yeah, I because um, this is something that I've just been keeping tabs on for a couple of years, where I just it just flagged because obviously about yeah five years ago he went on kitchen cabinet and he cooked a fish curry, mm. and mm. okay fine. And then he became prime minister and he referenced and I remember I remember hearing him reference a curry quite early on and I was thinking it's weird it sort of feels like he sort of it's almost in my head it was like he was doing like a, a callback but it, it, it very un- it's almost like it's almost like if someone kept bringing up that they were the winner of Celebrity Mastermind you know it was it was that yeah, sort of it was, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was jarring and so well I think I, the important thing is though that Scott Morrison has not even been on Celebrity even Mastermind. Been on Celebrity Mastermind not even close and so I remember hearing him mention Carrie I think that's weird like felt like he was referencing an episode of a TV show he was on. Um, but it wasn't particularly iconic. So uh, I thought that's weird. And then, you know, I think when the strawberry needle thing happened, 
he talked about making a curry. And I thought that's a, that's, that's, a, that's a bit of a long bow because he was talking about like Jen was going to make a pav. Okay. But then he was going to make a curry. And I don't know why we're talking about curries now and in regards to don't put needles into strawberries. And it just, I just sort of just kept notes of it every time that he said it. And so this sketch was really, and there's stuff that was cut out ultimately because it was just, too, there actually were too many curry references. Like he's <laughs> just talked about it too many times. Um, so not even all of them are in there, but we, 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 you know, we incorporated some of the, some of the highlights. And so that was very good to kind of get out of my system just to have my, my say on that. <laughs> Well, yes, and uh, our regular listeners know, and I probably said it already in this podcast, because although uh, this is the first segment that we're, I'm recording, but it's going to be later in the podcast. So, you know, I get to do things like say, well, and and earlier, as you would have heard from Tegan <laughs> Taylor uh, about the coronavirus, uh, well, et cetera. Yes. Uh, I mean, she she and Norman Swan have been, you know, MVPs this year, obviously. But, um, well, they uh, are, yeah. although I deliberately did not invite Norman Swan onto this podcast because he is a Quokka fan. And as <laughs> regular listeners would know, Quokkas are bullshit animals. They're just wrong. <laughs> Quolls are the way to go. You, 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 you know, you might be able to go a bilby if you're from South Australia, uh, you know, maybe something else. But quolls are and quokkas are rubbish. Okay. Um, I'm sort of agnostic on it. I, 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 I don't have a strong opinion, but I to each, to each their own. Norman Swan actually pops up in one of the other sketches for he does. War on 2020. Um, yeah. So very nice. And does very well, I think. That's really most kind of him. Good. But he is a lovely chap. Yeah. I I met him and was on a thing with him. Oh, he wouldn't remember. It was like 30 years ago or something when I was. But a wee lad. So of, of, of your sketches this year, which ones – I mean, you've done some fantastic stuff, uh, both with the Chaser slash Shovel and on 7.30. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, I, I don't think it sounds like a well, cop Well, you won out. an award, Actually, mate. Have, have, yeah. have, have we mentioned that yet? You won you and Evan won an Augie. Australian Writers Guild. But um, I think it's going to sound like a combat, cop-out answer. The, my, my, I think I actually think the, my, the, the sketch that we released yesterday, uh, or whenever this goes out, and the sketch we released most recently um, uh, yes. is – The last um, one before Christmas. The yes. one you just heard, in fact. Right. There you go. Um, uh, I think that might be my favourite because I just – I've always wanted to do something uh, with that voice – um, and just, you know, the voice that you would use to, I don't know if these shops still exist now, but like on, on, um, Pitt street, I remember there'd be, uh, Pitt street mall in Sydney, there'd be, um, shops where it would just be like savings, savings, savings. And then it would just be like three pairs of socks, just $10. Yeah, it was always that. Oh, they voice. still exist. They, still, they exist. still exist though. During the Corona times, uh, some of them seem to have vanished. I, I don't know oh, why, okay. but there was one. Uh, there was one at Sydney Central Station in the Eddy Street kind of uh, area, right. uh, and a couple uh-huh. of others. So yes. I, uh-huh. I, I don't know. I, I, I imagine that both their supply chains were interrupted, and you know they're really skimming the edge of business, right? They're just doing renting whatever shops they can grab yes. <laughs> That's for it. a month two months yeah the reject shop I mean, it's like the great space. persian like the, carpet yeah. industry isn't it which is forever on the edge of collapsing forever closing down yeah i mean there was one in crow's nest i remember that just i think it was closing down for the best part of two decades it was extraordinary yes. 
Um, and then it did close down. And you just weren't ready for it when it did close down. Yeah, like, that's right. You almost felt annoyed at them for not telling you. You almost was like. Well, that's right. I mean, if you were out to buy a Persian carpet, you know, I'll, I'll look, I'll pop yeah. down next week. Yeah. And then I it's mean, it gone. Was, exactly. I mean, they are the boy who cried closing down. And yeah, so I, I never really, I never got that that rug, sadly. But I enjoyed, I, yes, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the closing down style. I really enjoyed having Virginia Gay come in and do um, a sketch with us about, I guess, we, I think we called it Liberal Party's woman problem. It was based off Scott Morrison answering Anne Rustin's question oh. for her. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll just drop that in now. As a woman in the government, uh, your reflections on, on the culture inside, has it got better, worse or no change since the, the bonk ban era? Well, Phil, the only thing that I can... How this ban is referred to, I think, is quite dismissive of the seriousness of the issue, Phil. Um, and I would ask media to stop referring to it in that way. We took it very seriously. And I think constantly referring to it in that way dismisses the seriousness of this issue. It's a very serious issue. Thanks, Anne. What are your impressions on the culture? Well, well, Phil, I mean, obviously I can only reflect on my own experience since I've been in this place since 2012. And, and I have to say that I have always felt wholly supported while I've been here. Uh, and I'd particularly note that, you know, since becoming a member of the Cabinet and a member of the ERC, there is nobody who's provided me more support and shown greater respect towards me as an individual than the Prime Minister. Beep. Yeah. I mean, that's just amazing, isn't it? <laughs> so that was just like... Oh well, that's the sketch right there. <laughs> so, and, you know, and so in that sketch, really, it's it's so you know I, I hate the phrase "it writes itself" because obviously we have to write it. But like that was one of those things where it's like, okay, Virginia will say something, and then I'll interrupt her. Virginia will say something, and then I'll interrupt her in a different way. I'll jump out of a bin. I'll have a you know a megaphone. Where <laughs> we'll just escalate it. But and she was so good. Uh, she was uh, performance is so nuanced, and I, I just think she's a, just you know divine talent um how much and, hate mail do you get uh i don't want to talk about jared henderson but I mean, it's not mail these days the, yeah <laughs> um but uh no most of it's just jared henderson really i mean i the uh i, I think I, I you know i think emails will come through to the producer at 7 30 which i'm shielded from um mm. so that's nice of them to uh, I, I have heard. Never uh, let the talent see the hate. Mail. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I've heard. I've had it filtered down to me that sometimes people don't like it. If I, if I swear, um, and uh, or they'll insist they can hear the swear word despite the fact that we have that we do bleep them. Um, so mm. that's that, that's something I am conscious of. But uh, no, I, I hate mail. No, it's really just again just you know, the occasional tweet once I recognise the shape of the. Of the criticism, I mean, I'm sorry, and I'm also open to uh, constructive criticism, and um, oh right, yeah, it doesn't always have to be. When I say open to constructive criticism, don't send me any. Um, no, but, I mean, what? No, hell but, no. But I mean, I won't just blindly mute people if they don't like something. Uh, but if they're abusive, that's where it's like, well, you're never going to. I, I would never want to appeal to you anyway, if that's the way that you are. Um, uh. Yeah, but if someone can, you know, someone points out something that I've, you know, where I'm wrong about something and can actually back it up, then I, I think that's quite useful. But it's never which happened. means you're very uh, different from Chris Ullman <laughs> in that in that oh, respect, aren't you? I, I mean, yeah. 
talking to me about uh, that. You can bail out of that if you like. I just, I don't know the guy. I, I, I don't really understand. I think there's just something kind of. Um, no, no, I'll, I'll let no let's not go yeah. there. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> we did a whole thing on Chris Ullman in another episode. Right. Um, okay. I just think his, I just think his I just dedication think, to science. Well, I just think after he posted that photo of the toilets, it was just like that was a very interesting choice. And then I feel like he's made a series of choices that kind of are consistent with that choice. And uh, and maybe that's not a choice that needs to be made. <laughs> <laughs> that's my diplomatic Indeed. <laughs> yeah. If there was just a big long beep, that's because we did just delete that segment, dear listener. <laughs> but we didn't say anything defamatory. We, we, we were just no, 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 we didn't. Okay. But to wrap up, which we must do because you have things to do and I have things to do, 2020, can you choose three words to sum it up? They can be. Yeah, it's a tough yeah. one, isn't it? Um, celebrity mastermind winner, I think. But no, the uh, <laughs> I, I, oh, that's right. You won celebrity mastermind, didn't you? Yeah, I'm going to give you two answers. Yeah. One's one's a joke answer that has an earnest point, and one's an earnest answer that has an earnest point. <laughs> excellent, both, both excellent. Earnest. So okay, I mean, three words to sum up 2020. I guess the joke answer is toilet paper shortage. But the mm. earnest element to that is I think that showed how thin the veneer of civilization is. A single ply, even. To, yeah, thank you. Well done. Well played, sir. <laughs> we, no, more, no more calls, please. Um, and uh, that, yeah, that was, I, I was really alarmed by that. That made me go, oh, mm. what if things really got bad? Like if that's where we're at after just like just the sort of tremors of a pandemic. And if I can plug someone who uh, isn't, uh, for example, a winner of Celebrity Mastermind, mm -hmm. John Birmingham's audio series for Audible, oh, yes. uh, which is it starts off with Zero Day Code is the first of three episodes. It is absolutely about the fact that a modern city has one week of food in it and if you cyber out the supply chains... You're fucked. Oh, and yeah, he right. wrote, like wrote this and then, all right, also if you rona out the supply chains, that happens. Mm. Right, while yes, while audible, I'm on should, audible, yeah, audible, audible, yes. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Yes, please check out uh, our audio series, Riot Act, about conservative commentator Campbell Parks, played by yours truly, uh, featuring Tony Brilliant Martin, character. Dan Illich, Wendy Harmer, Heather Mitchell. I mean, it's an absolute... All it is it it is wonderful, um, and yes, Campbell Parks was a character that I did like. From uh, he was on the SBS stuff, wasn't yes, he? Yes, was on the feed. Has yeah. he been on the ABC? Probably not. Uh, he has. We did we did crowbar him into something. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I can't remember what triggered that. I think there was just a sort of general conservative hysteria <laughs> about. Yeah, I think it, it might have been related to just let all the old people die. I can't remember what whatever that whatever that was. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> What do you remember? Do you remember April? <laughs> um, okay, yes. toilet paper shortage. Toilet paper shortage. And then my other um, earnest answer is um, a missed opportunity. I think that's three words. I feel like this this pandemic was oh. a real opportunity for us to kind of reevaluate. And I think some people have. I'm not convinced that it's being done at a sort of macro level. But I, I, I sort of I thought that there was a real opportunity. With people working from home, 
for us to kind of have a sort of big picture discussion about right what do, what office space do we actually need how much how many who do we how do we really need do we really need all these people coming in to work every day can we you know again prioritize family time and people working from home and all that sort of stuff and then based off that Right, so with, with this office space, what, how can we sort of collectively downsize? What buildings can now become housing? What buildings can now become public spaces? That's sort of, uh, maybe maybe these conversations are being had. Um, I'm not conscious of them being had, but that's my sort of naive, that was my sort of naive hope from this experience was that there'd be some of those sort of big picture discussions about what 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 is a city um, and, um, you know, how could we better use the space that we've got? Um, yeah, that's that's my honest answer. <laughs> wow, that that is just such a wonderful note to ponder uh, as we are approaching the new year. What a that is a wonderfully positive thought. And and I will end there and I will say, Mark Humphreys, thank you so much. And best to you and yours for the new year. Oh, thank you, Still. Uh, uh, an absolute thrill to join you uh, again. And, uh, and my best wishes to all your listeners and everyone who has uh, muted the OzPol hashtag. I had to go back and check. Uh, about those three flavours of Arnott's Shapes Aussie Legends from a year ago. They were Sausage Sizzle, Cheese and Vegemite, and Meat Pie and Sauce. How could I forget that? So, yes, I we, we, we did um, compare all them and review them a, a year ago, and I've linked to that relevant website. And this year... Arnott's uh, released another Aussie Legends Shapes flavour, Chicken Parma. And that's caused problems, right? Because Parma is short for Parmigiana, except it's not Parma, it's Parmi. And I've linked to another story at news.com.au where this is this has caused problems. To quote one person uh, from Facebook, anyone calling it a palmer should remain in lockdown indefinitely. Someone else, I'd try them if they spelt it correctly. Parmigiana is a palmy. Uh, yes, someone else agreed with that and said, if there was an A in the middle, you'd have an argument. While a fourth person simply said, you are not Australian if you call it a palmer. P-A-R-M-A. I did all of the thank yous earlier, but where are we? Here we go. I forgot one. Another anonymous person, thank you very much, uh, heard me talking about whiskey, uh, not whiskey sours, old fashions the other day. One of my favourite cocktails. And I'll uh, I'll actually, yeah, look, I'll throw it in the link. Uh, there's a lovely article about how to make them properly. Uh, at the pub recently, there was uh, a special maker's mark who, who make bourbon uh, had put on a special where they'd make an old-fashioned for a good price with maker's mark. Except maker's mark is a bourbon, and I think you really need a rye whiskey to do an old-fashioned. So uh, this chap noted that in Melbourne there's a place called The Gospel, The Gospel Whiskey in Brunswick, and they make... Uh, a Solera rye. I'm going to pour myself one. Um, one shot. 
two shots. I mean, doubles are the way to go. What is a like a single shot of whiskey? Um, it's it's kind of more. Let me just read the back of the tasting notes. I don't. Why am I doing? I, I mean, gospel whiskey isn't paying for this. Um, I'm saying thank you. It's a very caramely kind of and uh, and, and a little spicy rye. I mean, I I I prefer. I mean, if I'm really in the mood, I love something really salty and briny and and peaty like a Talisker from Scotland. But uh, you know, these guys are coming well. They've only been running a couple of years, so it's a oh, it actually really is nice. Um, not as complex as someone uh, might make a whiskey if their you know their equipment's been settling in for a while. But good one. That's the um, the gospel, Solera Rye uh, from Melbourne. Thank you very much to that anonymous listener. Look, as I listen back to all of those segments as I, I recorded this uh, today, I thought, what? Yeah, hell of a year. Kind of a year. And all of us kind of muddled our way through it because there were so many things. We didn't, we didn't know even how to think about them, let alone how to feel about them and, and react to them. Um, the COVID... Australia's federal government being so remarkably clueless and yet its approval ratings are, are kind of high. That kind of points to Scott Morrison being just kind of innocuous uh, and riding on the coattails of all the excellent work the state premiers did this year. Um, not really able to make decisions and plan ahead. It's just kind of all this reactive stuff. We saw him really start to be called out as not being just Scotty from marketing, but Scotty from photo ops. Uh, yeah, he loves having his photo taken, doesn't he? And then there's the whole Trump thing. and I, I haven't said much about that today because I think we're all just fucking exhausted, aren't we? And he's going to go away, so that's fine. And again, I, I just want to say that, yeah, I... I think 2021 still is going to be important for the COVIDs. I mean, America is still in denial. Uh, Marco Rubio, who's a, a, a senator, uh, Republican senator, obviously, said on Twitter just like less than 48 hours ago, Dr. Fauci lied about the masks in March. Dr. Fauci has been distorting the level of vaccination needed for herd immunity. It isn't just him. Many in elite bubbles believe the American public doesn't know what's good for them, so they need to be tricked into doing the right thing. Imagine a senator thinking it's other people who are in the elite bubbles. All of that, as I say, is bullshit, high-grade bullshit, and it's obscene that a senator is saying this crap. Of course, we have the same problem here in Australia, and I really don't want to go into it right now. Meanwhile, in California, that's it. Southern California and the San Joaquin Valley, no intensive care beds left, none. And those areas together, that's 30 million people. COVID-19 surge is going to happen. Uh, we've started to see it after Thanksgiving Day in the US, but we've got Christmas and New Year, and it's all going to kick off, and there's no intensive care beds left. I'm a happy little possum, aren't I? 
Meanwhile, um, Amelia Frapoli on Twitter found a wonderful clip from uh, a newspaper called The Commonwealth. This is from January 29th, uh, 1914. Wow, more than a century ago. And it's a great story. It's called Capitalist Insanity, says the headline. And the first paragraph, a scientist prophesizes that by the year 2020, the inhabitants of the world will all be insane. Some of us are inclined to think that today the world is one huge insane asylum where the sane are kept in bondage by the insane and then, oh, I haven't got the rest of the story. I'll have to look that up. But is the whole world insane by 2020? You tell me. New Year's Eve in two days. New Year starts in three days. Have you put together your New Year's resolutions? I kind of have. I want to drink a bit left. Uh, I want to drink a bit less. I would really like the world to cooperate in that aim. Uh, uh, not. I mean, great if COVID came down. I need to get more exercise. I put on so much weight during the corona times. And it also occurred to me, Just recently, it's coming up to 10 years since I've been living in the Blue Mountains, and this was only going to be a temporary thing for a few weeks. Um, Yeah, 10 years ago, it was like in Enmore in Sydney, fuck, I have to move. Why is the owner of the property being so much of an arsehole and not being flexible about this? Uh, The wonderful people at Bungeree Cottages, and especially Richard Chergwin and his wife Trudy, uh, said, well, you know, um, we're not going to be up there for a while and, and if you want to kind of help out in a bit, and I won't go into what the deal was, but I thought, yeah, 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 that'll be handy for a few weeks until a more convenient time for house hunting and that's coming up to 10 years ago. Causes thought. Causes me to think about what I want to do in 2021. Anyway, I'm rambling. This podcast has gone on, has gone on for so long already. Uh, best to you and yours for the new year. May it be slightly less shit. And that's all the edict for now, and all the edict for 2020. Everything you need to know is at the 9pmedict.com. Please pop over there and chuck some money into the tip jar and please tell your friends. The next episode uh, will be, yeah, as, as you heard, I'm still to plan that. But until then, I'm still Garyan. Happy New Year. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.